Have you ever uh, heard the verse in Proverbs? I think it's actually there a couple of times where it said, pride comes before the fall. Anybody ever applied that verse to your own life besides me? <laughs> so a few years ago, maybe, oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, when you get to be almost 65, 20 or 30 years, just a few years ago, uh, I think as an adult, when people would get a traffic ticket or something like that, I would, I guess, I, I guess you'd call it boasting. I don't know what other word to call it except boasting. I would say, well, you know, I've never gotten a speeding ticket or a traffic ticket of any kind as if I was the perfect driver, never going over the speed limit, never breaking the law, never jaywalking, that kind of thing. So anyway, pride goes before the fall. The Lord decided that it was time to humble me in this regard. And so within a span of about a year and a half, year and a half or two, I got three traffic tickets. A couple of them for speeding, and another one was for getting in the left-hand lane too early because the traffic line was long. And so I thought, well, the lane's open. I'll just get up there and go up and make my left-hand turn. Well, it just happened to be a cop in the parking lot. He was just nailing him one right after the other that day. It was amazing. He probably made the city a whole bunch of money. And then the other time, I was uh, at a, uh, I think, a men's conference, and I was so just, I don't know, I was fired up. And I was with a brother, and we were singing songs that we had sang there on the way back. And, well, my heart got carried away, and then my foot got carried away. And so I got pulled over for speeding on 465. The other one, I was, just, I was going a normal speed, 40, 45 mile an hour on a place that had at least, I don't know, 50, 55 mile an hour speed limit. The trouble was there was construction going on. And there were signs that I had not adjusted my, my speed to those signs. And so I got another traffic ticket. Now, all of you young people in here, please do not imitate Pastor Gary in these things. You should not go over the speed limit. So anyway, the way this worked over that year and a half or two period of time is I would get a ticket, and so at that point in time, I thought, I'm either paying a fine or I'm going to traffic school or something like that, and I thought, this is not worth it. I am going to slow down. So for the next few weeks and probably even months, I would drive pretty close to the speed limit, so I'm not going to get pulled over. But then after a while, you kind of get comfortable, and you're thinking, okay, you know, or you get in a hurry, and you forget that you got a ticket back a few months ago. You know, it's kind of like having a baby in the pain. You forget about it and have another one. You know what I'm talking about, Sarah? <laughs> so anyway, I forgot about it, and so I'd pick up another one. I thought, ah, when am I going to learn my lesson? So I said, from this point forward, I'm not going to speed. I'm going to go the speed limit, even if I'm in a hurry and whatever. And most of the time I got these tickets, I was on ministerial business. Really, I was going to a funeral one time, and I was running a little bit late. That was the construction zone area. I got the ticket. The other one was because I was just pumped up, and a brother and I were singing to the Lord. We were ready to go up at any time. And So anyway, uh, and the other one was just impatience on my part. I couldn't wait an extra minute to get up to the regular turn lane. So anyway, so that, that, that same pattern persisted. Now, finally, after the third ticket, and wondering if I'm going to lose my license or what's going to happen at that point, I'm thinking, I've got to put an end to this. I've got to stop speeding. You know what I mean, Jax? Yeah. It's kind of like you guys run around the church too fast, right? There's a speed limit in here, buddy. Yeah. Joel, there's a speed limit in here. Remember that. You're going to be running soon. So anyway, God's been gracious. I can't say that I have 
that I'm always driving within the speed limit at this point, but I am aware that if I drive a certain amount over the speed limit, there's always that possibility. So I'm learning slowly and gradually, and I'm not going to express too much appreciation for my growth because about the time I would do that, then pride comes before the fall, I would get another ticket and have to come back and report it to you all. But the, what I'm sharing with you here is exactly what happens in the book of Judges, which we're going to look at today, is Israel would be at a time of peace, and they would forget about the Lord. And then so God would bring enemies, plunderers that would come and remind them that without me, without my protection, without the relationship there, you're in danger. So danger would come. And then after a while, Israel would cry out to the Lord. And the Lord would have pity and mercy, show mercy, and he would send a judge to deliver them. And then they'd be at a few years at peace. Same thing with me on the traffic ticket. After a while, they kind of forgot about the fact that, you know, they forgot about their pain, and it would happen again. So that's what we're going to look at in Judges, and I hope you will see that there is a good application to your own life in terms of not just obeying the laws, but keeping in a close relationship with Christ so that you're not pulled away into these other areas and suffer the consequences. So let me, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Thank you that your word never returns void. And I pray that today, Holy Spirit, that your word will capture our hearts, our minds, our life, our actions, and that your love, Lord, would motivate us to love you in return and to live a life that would be pleasing to you because we love you, and that's because you loved us first. So pour out your love on us this day, Lord, and help us to love you, our Heavenly Father, in the way that children should. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you just a little bit of an introduction to Judges, and if you want to open your, your tablet or your device or, or your Bible to Judges, it's the, uh, I guess, the seventh book of the Bible. You've got the five books of the law, and then Joshua, and then Judges, so that's where it's located. Well, who were the Judges? All right, you know, uh, it, uh, when we think of Judges, we think of someone who's judicating a case and deciding, you know, who's right and who's wrong, or if any, any, any law was broken. But these judges were more political and military leaders that God empowered to help rescue the nation of Israel from the enemies that came upon them. Uh, the period of the judges was really about a 300-year period from about 1350 B.C. to 1050 B.C., so about 300 years. So it was after Moses and Joshua, so they're in the land, but it was before Samuel anointed Saul and David and then Solomon. So the period of the judges is kind of between Moses and Joshua and then the kings, the monarchy, all right? Uh, the author was probably Samuel, and it probably occurred after 1050 B.C., during the years of the monarchy, is probably when he collected these notes and other writings and put them together to write the book of Judges. Uh, a key transitional passage in Joshua, if you go back to Joshua chapter 24, just go back a page, uh, Joshua and Judges are sort of connected in a, in a way, and I want to show you some uh, passages where they're kind of connected. 
Look at Joshua 24, verse 28. And this is after Joshua gives his last message to the nation before he dies. All right, so these are his final words. So he gave them his final words, and this is what he said afterwards. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. Now go down to verse 31, all right? Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. I wanted to emphasize that point. When Joshua lived, Israel served the Lord. When the elders that outlived Joshua were there, they served the Lord. Why? Because these were the, these were the generations who had known all the things that God had done for the nation. So out of gratitude, they're serving the Lord and living for Him. All right, now, go to Judges chapter 2 and look at verses 6 through 8. When Joshua dismissed the people, see the connect there, same thing. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. Because you might remember that when Joshua brought the nation into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, they conquered a lot of different areas, but there were still a lot of pockets, you know, many groups of people that they had not conquered. But what Joshua decided to do, instead of all of Israel going around and conquering, he just sent them to the different areas that they were inheriting and said, okay, go clean it up now. It was kind of like going hand-to-hand combat when you're trying to clear out a city or something like that. That's what he told them to do, all right? So he's sending them away to do that. All right, right, verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. Now go to verse 10, please. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation. One generation following the Lord, faithful to the end of their lives. But then there arose another generation. And look what characterizes them. Who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You see just what a thin line or how quickly a group of people from go, can go from serving the Lord to not knowing the Lord or the work that he had done. And, of course, you can see the result of that would not be good. And the question I have in my mind as I read that is like, why? Why didn't Joshua and the elders and the people of that generation pass along to their kids and grandkids the mighty works that God had done. I mean, nobody here has seen Jesus in the mighty works that he did. We haven't seen him face to face. But it's been passed along through Scripture. And each of us teaches one. So why didn't that happen? There's really serious consequences, as, as, you, as we're going to see in the book of Judges, and how important that is. So... I guess right off the bat, I want to challenge all of you, be an influence for Christ in any way that you can, any time that you can. And I'll share more on that a little bit later. 
So now, what was Israel's main sin in the book of Judges? Well, their general sin, let me point to a couple verses here that tell us their general sin. Go to chapter 17, first of all, Judges 17, and look at verse 6. Go to two different places. It says this two times in the book of Judges, kind of their general overall sin. And chapter 17, verse 6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds dangerous to me, doesn't it to you? And now go to the very last verse in this book, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in a way, having... A spiritual leader that's following the Lord does make a difference. Leaders do make a difference. But Israel had a king all along. It was the Lord. It was Yahweh. He was their king. They had a king. They just didn't acknowledge him as king. But God continued to send judges and prophets and ultimately his son. But God's always been with his people, and he's always with us as well. But that was their general sin. Now look at chap go back to Judges now in chapter 2, and let's look at their specific sin. Uh, that you heard Val read just a minute ago. Look, look at verse 11, Judges 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the Canaanite god. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Doesn't that just get to you? Think of all that God, you know, Yahweh had done for them, and yet they abandoned him. I mean, that ingratitude just sort of grabs you, but, you know, when you think about it, we've all been there ourselves. We've all had a lack of gratitude, not only to the Lord, but to one another. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Again, just Canaanite gods, lowercase g, gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. But as Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounded all the more. So in the next verse, we see God's grace, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So you see the pattern? In verses 11 through 13, we see Israel's disobedience. And then in verses 14 through 15, we see God's discipline because of that disobedience. And then we see Israel's repentance. Now, we don't really see it in this scripture right here. So go to chapter 6, verse 6, with the story of Gideon. We'll come back to this in a minute. Look at verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, one of the enemies that had attacked them. And the people of Israel cried out for the Lord to help, or they cried for help to the Lord. So we see that after a while, it's just too much. 
And they realize they've sinned, and that's why they're in this predicament. And so they cry out to the Lord. They repent. And then so how does God respond? Well, he restores them. And so he sends judges, deliverers to come and to help them to be free and for the land and for the people to be at rest. All right? So the result of these ongoing struggles, Israel has ongoing struggles. Now look at verse 20. We see some ongoing struggles here. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive I'm, I'm sorry, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Why? In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And then verse 23 says, So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Can we think about some application here real quick for a moment? When we compromise our walk, when we get a little cool toward the Lord, when we just kind of not really walk away, but become indifferent toward him. And we allow other gods, jobs, people, possessions, money. And we allow these other lowercase g gods to come in before him. Then he brings some discipline into our life. He brings some oppression of some kind, some discipline. And then we cry out to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. I know I need to, you need to be preeminent in my life. I need to keep you first. You're my creator, you're my redeemer. And as we'll look at a little bit later in Deuteronomy, you are my life. And then God restores. But when we continue to not respond, God says, okay, if this is the way it's going to be, if you're going to learn the hard way instead of the easy way, then I'm going to allow some of these oppressors, some of these enemies, some of these struggles and issues in your life, I'm going to allow them to stay there for a while so that you'll learn to seek me with all of your heart. Sorry, Joel, that's just the way it is. God knows how long and how much it's going to take for us to finally fully surrender and commit ourselves to him and to put him on the throne of our hearts and for him to have first place in our hearts till the rest of our lives, till the, the day that we die and see him face to face. He knows how much it's going to take. So if in your own mind you're thinking about the things that you battle, some of those things may just be there to help you grow up and, and to sanctify you. But sometimes some of those things are there because we haven't responded fully to the Lord. He wants us to be totally free, totally conquer every enemy out there to our souls. I mean, that's why Christ came, to set us free, to give us life abundantly. I mean, read the book of Romans 6, 7, and 8. That's what the Lord wants for us. But because we continue to dabble, in the, in the lowercase g gods of our life, God says, okay, I need to leave some, some things in your life there to continue to help 
bring you back to me. All right? All right, let's move on. So here's a point I want to make. From God's point of view, even more important than giving Israel the promised land was teaching them to obey the word of the Lord. From God's perspective, from his viewpoint, it was more important to teach them to obey him, to listen to his voice, than it was to give them the land. God was going to give them the land because God always keeps his promises. But God was trying to teach them to be promise keepers as well and to love him and to fully follow him, all right? Here's a verse from Deuteronomy 30 that I referenced a minute ago. It's verse 19 and 20. Moses is speaking for God. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life. You see, when you try to seek for life in anything else other than him, it's always going to be disappointing. It's always going to come up short because there's nowhere else to turn for real life than to Christ. He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you lacking victory over areas of your life you'd like to change? Be honest with yourself. Are you lacking victory over areas of your life that you'd like to change? Most of us, I think, could raise a hand at this point. All right? So what we have to start doing is we have to start loving the Lord, hearing his word, obeying his word, basically putting our hand in the hand of Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Wherever you lead, that's where I want to go. Whatever task you appoint me to, that's what I want to do. When you do that, when you die to yourself and live for him, that's when true life shows up. All right? So what is the purpose of the book of Judges? Well, mostly to show, paint a portrait of Israel without Yahweh, without the Lord as their king. It shows what life is like when we don't keep Jesus on the throne, okay? Here's what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says about the purpose and theme of the book of Judges. The purpose of the book of Judges was to demonstrate divine judgment on Israel's idolatry. They had idols, idols of the heart, all right? More specifically, the book recorded Israel's disobedience to the Lord's kingship as mediated or carried out through her God-appointed and spirit-empowered leaders, Moses, Joshua, the judges. And the subsequent need for a centralized kingship as the means through which the Lord would continue to exercise his rule and reign over the nation of Israel. Israel's disobedience to the Lord and her worship of Canaanite gods resulted in her failure to experience divine blessings and the full conquest of their enemies. See, here's the thing about most of us is that we're content not to have all of God's blessing. And we're content to not conquer all of our enemies. We've gotten comfortable with that. But the good news this morning is that you can experience 
the full blessings of God. That is the good news of what Christ came to do. And the issue is, will you open your heart, open your mind, open your Bibles, open your lives to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I want to follow you. It begins by giving him permission. So I want you to think about that. Now, there are 12 judges that are mentioned in this book, and I'm going to spend about a half an hour on each one. So here we go. Why are you all laughing? Jax, why are they laughing? You know? I don't know either. No, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about two of the judges, all right? Gideon and Samson. Those are two of the well-known judges. And so go to chapter 6, and let's look at the life of Gideon because we can learn quite a bit by just looking at these two judges. And then I have some lessons I just want to share with you, and so, um, it, it, you know, we, we won't go on. You'll get lunch today, so not, not to worry. All right, look at chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Go down to verse 6. And by the way, they'd come in in hordes with their camels, and they would just eat up whatever livestock or produce that was going on. So in other words, you sat down for lunch, and the Midianites came in and took it. I mean, that gets irritating after a while. You know what I mean? I mean, we're, we were talking about food in our uh, city group this morning, and a lot of us are motivated by food. You know, we, we appreciate a good meal, and the Midianites weren't allowing the Israelites to eat. I mean, that, that gets to you after seven years, all right? So uh, go to then, let's read on from verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says, that's what prophets do, thus says the Lord. Prophets never speak their own words. They speak the word that God gives them to speak to the people. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up. Notice how when God approaches us, he's always reminding us of what he's done. <laughs> Isn't that good? I mean, that's why we celebrate communion every week. That's a reminder every week of what Christ did for us. I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ, came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. They're having to do all of this preparation of food and stuff undercover, because if not, the Midianites come in and swoop it up, all right? So, he said in verse 15, I'm sorry, verse, uh, where did I leave off at? 12, thank you. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Here he is hiding like a schoolgirl, beating out wheat, trying to get a little bit of sustenance, and the Lord shows up and says to Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. I love the way the Lord doesn't speak to us and where we're at, but who he's going to make us to be. That's how we should see people, don't you think? Don't focus on their imperfections. 
their immaturity or wherever they're at. Focus on who God has, can make them to be and speak blessing into their life in terms of what God can do in terms of a finished product. And that's what the angel of the Lord does, all right? Go down to verse 15 now. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, which was one of the tribes. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. Has God ever sent you on a mission? And then all of a sudden you focus on yourself. Isn't that just human nature? Where our new nature needs to overcome that? And we, we need to stop thinking about ourselves and think about the Lord. God says, oh, by the way, I'm going to go with you. That should be, when we hear that, it's kind of like, fine, let's do it. You know, I'm ready. If you're with me, I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Okay, now, I don't think God wants us asking for signs all the time, but he allowed Gideon to do this. A couple, three times he allowed Gideon to ask for a sign. So look at verse 20. God gives him a sign. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, which he had prepared for this visitor, the angel of the Lord, and put them on this rock and pour broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock. Wow, there wasn't any fire to begin with. They just put all the food and the broth and everything on there, and the angel of the Lord reached out his staff, and boom, there was a fire. You guys have been camping lately. You ever do that? No fire? You just, you know, boom, fire comes up. And it consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. All right, first sign. Now jump to verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save me, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. That's a lot of dew. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. <laughs> let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. Again, God was merciful, and God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. You know, if I was the army of the, or the general of that army, I'd be thinking, Wow, we're not in good hands here, you know? 22,000 leave. They were fearful. Oh, well. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. 
Take them down to the water, and I will test them. Go to verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300. 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. Here's the point of that. The battle belongs to the Lord. He doesn't need us. He'll win the battle. Sometimes all he wants you to do is to stand and trust him and watch and see the salvation of the Lord. You see that throughout the Old Testament. God says, the battle is mine. And that's what he's saying to Gideon. Okay, we'll keep 300 around just so that, you know, you can say you were involved. But he didn't really need him. So go down to verse 18. And he divided the, the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. Oh, that sounds fun. Verse 18. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! Down to verse 22. So when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the army. In other words, the Midianites started fighting themselves. <laughs> and that happens a few times in Scripture, too, where God just confuses the enemy and they begin to battle themselves. I mean, the Israelites don't even have to do anything but watch. Verse 23, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher. Oh, there's Asher. Woo, he made it. And from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So these three tribes came out and then began to, to rout the Midianites. All right. Now, if you will, jump over to uh, chapter 8, verse 28. Chapter 8, verse 28. I want you to see the pattern that we talked about earlier. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. And now the sad part of the story. Go to verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Can I just say pretty safely here this morning that we people are fickle. We're all in, and then for some reason we're all out. And you just kind of see this pattern, this up and down roller coaster ride throughout the book of Judges. Israel turns their back. They're in trouble. They cry out. God sends a deliverer. He gives them peace for a while, and then they forget again. It's almost like God has to send a constant enemy of one kind or another into our lives for us to remember our mortality and that we need him. I wonder how freeing it would be, what glory there would be if we could just surrender those things to the Lord and let him wipe out 
those deeds of the flesh and those things that, that keep us in slavery. I think it'd be wonderful. I think we'd be like the disciples. We'd turn the world upside down. I know we'd turn our own worlds upside down if we did that. Want to hear about Samson? Go to chapter 13. Another fairly familiar judge is Samson. And Samson is a great example of having strengths, I mean physical strength, he had it, but also having great weaknesses. Here's the other thing about people. God can put aside your weaknesses long enough to be able to use the strengths that he's given you to accomplish his purposes, even when you're not fully engaged with him. Now, I'm not going to say that again because it, it may not have been all truth, so you just have to think about that. But I think it's true. God will use you for his glory even when your whole heart is not there. I mean, just like he used wicked kings like Cyrus to send the Jews back to Jerusalem. God does what, you know, I think in the, maybe it's Proverbs 22 where it says the king's heart is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Read Psalm 2 for a great uh, study of just the, how God laughs at kings and, and leaders uh, thinking that they're in charge and control. They're not. The Lord is sovereign. He is in control. So, Samson, chapter 13, verse 1. Hey, Reuben, while we read about Samson, can you put your arms like this and just make some muscles since he was a strong man? Try that. Just, just hold it tight until we're done with Samson. Okay, I'll let you know when to let up. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Gideon, it was the Midianites. Now it's the Philistines. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribes of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Again, here's the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, a Nazarite was a person who was set apart, separated and set apart for God's purposes. And so Samson is set apart from, from the womb to be a Nazarite. So no strong drink, his hair is not cut, he's totally given over to the Lord. Go to verse 21. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So there, if you want a little proof text in terms of the angel of the Lord, that's, that's a text right there you can go to. The angel of the Lord is God. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. Go to verse 24, please. And the warm woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. Chapter 14. Now we're going to see some of the weaknesses of Samson begin to come out. 
Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Another translation says, She looks good to me. Get her. All right, go down to verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. You can't have a party without other people, right? So these guys come. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what, is, what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle the way we, the, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, the, the part that we didn't read earlier was that Samson had killed a lion, and when he came back later, he found a hive of bees beginning to make their home there and produce honey. So he's talking about this lion carcass that had a hive of bees there. All right, go down to verse 18. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? You see, they had put pressure on his fiancée to find out the riddle and tell them so they wouldn't have to give all these garments and clothes to Samson. So then Samson said, If you had not plowed with my heifer you would not have found out my riddle. In other words, if you wouldn't have used my fiancé to get me to tell you the answer, you wouldn't have figured it out. Now, here's just a heads up for you guys. I'm a farm boy, so words like heifer and, you know, Porky the pig and some of those other things like that, those are endearing terms to me. But I'll just tell you guys, uh, sometimes women don't appreciate being called these names, and that's just from years of experience, so... Maybe that can save you at some point in time. So think of other analogies or things that you might call your wife. But I know for sure that Porky the pig does not work. So that may be one of the better things you take with you today. All right. Verse 19. All right. Get your mind off that. We're back in the scriptures now. Verse 19. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. See, see Samson is so unwise at times. Hey, I got a riddle for you. You know? But then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. God can just, he can use us without us really being his. And that should, that should concern us, that we can do things for the Lord when we're really not connected to the Lord. Just like in Matthew 7, where they said, well, Lord, we did this and this and this for you. And Jesus says, I don't know you. Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, which is one of the Philistine cities. And he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. In other words, he didn't go back to his wife. He went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So here's another heads up for any of you that aren't married here. 
just watch, keep an eye on your best man, all right? Make sure you get married before something happens. That's all I'm saying. Pay attention. All right, chapter 15. So after some days at the time of wheat harvest, keep that in mind. It's time of the wheat harvest. The, the wheat is, is, is ripe. It's ready to be, to, to be plucked. Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. He didn't realize she'd been given away at this point. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Just a lot of bad things in Scripture that happen that we can learn from, okay? He says, please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So he's angry at this point, and he's going to seek his own revenge, which is not a good thing to do, Romans chapter 12. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes. I've never caught one fox in my life. I mean, I found a dead one one time and cut off its tail, and I have that in my office if you ever want to see that. But I've never caught a fox. They just seem too wily and fast. I don't know. But he, somehow he catches 300 foxes. You ever caught a fox, Jax? Israel, you ever caught a fox? Would you like to? Yeah, I figured. All right, well, there we go. That'd be a nice father-son outing sometime. Go after a fox. Is that legal? I'm not sure. Foxes can be hunted. Oh, well. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches. I don't know what they look like, but some t something you could set on fire. And he turned them tail to tail. He took these foxes, grabbed their tails together, and tied the, t the torch between them. This has to be of God. I mean, who can think of these things, all right? And when he set fire to the torches, and he let the foxes go into the standing grain. Remember, it's time of wheat harvest and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Now, how do you think the Philistines are feeling towards Samson at this point? Not good. They are pretty unhappy with Samson. So they go after him. And uh, the, the nation of Israel is ready to give Samson up, but he, just, he says, don't kill me, and I'll let, you, I'll let you turn me over to them, okay? Because they said, look, we're under the Philistines' rule. If we don't turn you over, they're going to kill all of us. So they turn him over. And then it says that uh, when they were getting ready to come and get him, in verse 15, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Evidently, a donkey had died and the, and the jawbone was exposed. And he put out his hand and he took the jawbone, and with it he struck a thousand men. See, God is using a very, um, in some ways, weak person and using his strength that God's given him then to deal with the enemy and to deliver Israel out of the Philistine hands. Just kind of amazing. Uh, go to chapter 16 now in verse 4. So a little bit later. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And that's where most of you are familiar with Samson, Samson and Delilah. And the Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said, Seduce him. And see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind them to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So five lords of the Philistines, that's 5,500 pieces of silver. And we were talking a chunk of change there, okay? So go on to verse 15 of chapter 16. And she said to him, she's talking to Samson, after several times of trying to get him to tell her what's up, and he just says other things that don't work. She said to him, how can you say I love you 
when your heart is not with me. You've mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to keep moving. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So she sets up a time. She gets him to sleep. She has a man there that comes in and shaves the locks of his head. Verse 21. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. Yuck. And brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again. I sort of get goosebumps when I think about that. Here's this man with no eyes now, totally humbled, serving like a donkey. And yet God begins to grow his hair out where his his strength comes from. You see how God can turn around situations? You really can. Is that somebody's heart? No? Okay. All right, go to verse uh, 25. And when their hearts were merry, talking about all these lords, the Philistines and their wives and all their entourage, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. And they wanted to make fun of him. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who led him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were with it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Gideon, a man who saw himself as nothing, how could God use me? Samson, a man who had strength, but yet had great weakness. And even in his weakness, God used him to accomplish his purposes. So how about some lessons from the book of Judges? Let me just kind of wrap things up, give you some lessons that I've seen as I've read through it a couple, three times. There's a human tendency to cry out to the Lord when we're in trouble or in great need and to forget about the Lord when things are going well. So where are you at in your life right now? Are things going well? That's a dangerous place to be. Lean into the Lord. Second lesson, God will protect us and give us victory when we abide in him and obey his word. In other words, stay under the umbrella of God's guiding presence and abiding presence and his word, and you'll be protected. Don't move out from under that. Third lesson is that the Lord is our ultimate leader, but he does call men and women in every generation to lead his people. It only takes one generation to compromise their walk with the Lord to produce a generation who will turn their back on him. 
And what that means, it's very important for me to pass along the word of God to my son. And it's very important for him to pass the word of God on to his sons. And in every situation, not just biological family, but people who we have influence over. It's important that we don't live a life of compromise because if we are compromised, they're, like, they're going to run off the rails. We've got to stay right square on the rails following Jesus if you want your kids or grandkids or people around you to follow him. Here's another lesson. When we don't totally put to death the enemy of the flesh, it will be a snare to us and keep us from being totally free in Christ and experiencing the abundant life that he came to give us. Keep dying to self. Keep putting the flesh to death. The flesh does not want to die. The flesh wants to live. It wants to overcome you. But Christ is more powerful. So as Paul said in Romans, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You can have victory. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Christ came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The enemy just wants to take you out. But he won't just come up front and just say, I'm going to take you out. No, no. He'll come around in the side and he'll, he'll come in a fashion, in a way that he doesn't seem like an enemy. But just that little whisper, that little voice, you can... Nobody's watching. Compromise here. Don't die to your flesh. You, you, you need your flesh. Have a little bit of God and have a little bit of mortality. And then Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, or brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, Serve one another. And then lastly, verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do we walk by the Spirit? If we're believers, the Spirit indwells us. All right? That's God's guarantee of a, future, a total future redemption. But the Spirit can also be grieved and quenched in your life. How is the Spirit grieved and quenched? Well, when we disobey the Lord, when we compromise, when we turn our backs on Him, when we do things that we know wouldn't be pleasing, when our love cools down and something else replaces that, that passionate spot in our hearts. And that's why God has to always have that. When we do that and the Spirit isn't grieved or quenched, then we'll, we'll live in the Spirit. But when we quench it and grieve it, then that's the point in time where we realize we need to come and to confess our sin. That's sort of the spiritual breathing, you know, where we need to breathe out, we need to confess sin. And then the breathing in is where we ask the Holy Spirit by faith to take control over us and to, and to minister to us and through us. So we have to learn to walk by the Spirit. And in conclusion, let me just share this closing thought. Instead of doing what is right in our own eyes, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and live according to God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit and with the help of the body of Christ. But 
In order to do that, we must first receive the love of God beautifully expressed in the person of Jesus Christ and remember all that he has done for us. So just a last question or two. Have you received the love of God through Christ? Have you put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? And please remember this. Following him begins by asking him to lead you. Have you ever asked the Lord to lead you? To be your king? To be your warrior leader? To put your hand squarely in his and say, Jesus, from this point in time, I want you to lead my life. Give me truth. Give me the sword of the Spirit. Help me to know how to use it. Help the Word to set me free. Conquer these enemies of the flesh in my life that I might be totally yours, that I might burn like a bright torch for the glory of God, that I might let my light shine in such a way that God will be glorified and generation after generation after generation will know Jesus. Let's pray.